1: It wasn't a life-changing science project, but it was quick. Audrey would borrow her dad's waders, measure the salt levels in different bodies of water in the western part of the Florida Panhandle, make some statement about erosion, and be good. It was a genius plan, and Blackwater River was her last stop. She waded into the water and filled up two of the five vials she needed for her project. The log brushed against her arm. It took Audrey two seconds too long to realize that the texture didn't feel like bark. The log split in half, and Audrey fell backwards as she realized her mistake. Giant glinting teeth splashed against the water. Her tree log was an alligator. She leapt up, ready to run, but then it yawned loudly and continued its lazy float through the marsh, completely uninterested in her. Audrey took a deep breath to collect herself. She carefully grabbed her filled test tubes before they floated downriver after the gator. She pulled out her next empty one, collecting her third sample. She was nearly soaked now and just wanted to be back on the beach. Something itched, She wiped her hand on her waders. Black dots bloomed into large splotches on her skin, snaking up her arm in twirling tendrils of rot. Audrey tried to fill up the next tube, but her arm was burning. The black spots were searing into her skin. The cold glass slipped from her fingers. She reached into the water, searching for the tube. Her hand stuck in the mud. She pulled away, but it pulled back, deeper and deeper, until brown water filled her lungs. The harder she fought, the harder the mud pulled, until she was swallowed whole. And then, in the silence, another gator floated by. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Blackwater River, the epicenter of a Florida state park that's known for its deceptively tranquil waters and a ghostly woman who drags her victims into its depths. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Despite its name, Blackwater River is actually one of the cleanest waterways in the United States. The description of Blackwater, or Okaloosa, to use the river's original Choctaw name, refers to the golden brown color of the river's water. This almost tea-like look is the result of the various tannins from the leaves and roots of the area's vegetation, which is dominated by the incredibly rare longleaf pine and wiregrass, making up one of the rarest ecosystem profiles in the world. Much of the Florida wilderness feels a bit like a jungle that time forgot, but what makes Blackwater River and its surrounding state parks so fascinating is its blend of the old and new. One can canoe a series of paddling trails set up by the park rangers, or spend the day tubing, floating through the comparatively shallow water as you sight deer, turkeys, river otters, and even alligators. Blackwater River has been a major waterway and center of life for populations in northern Florida for millennia. But no matter how many beach chairs you place on Blackwater's pristine white shores and sandbars, something about it is unknowable. Something slithers in the grass or waits in the water. There's a history that's hard to grab a hold of, but it can still grab a hold of you. Right now, Blair's friends were driving to see Madonna's Blonde Ambition Tour in Houston. They were all leaving the state for the first time. Well, leaving for a state other than Alabama, which was only 20 minutes west. And that was if you were driving safely. Blair, by comparison, was a pastor's daughter, and her papa preached that Madonna was the devil in a cone bra. Her father had found out about her plans and put his foot down. Blair would not be spending her spring break in a den of sin. She would be spending it with Mark. Mark, her dad's favorite little parishioner. Mark, their high school's least talented wide receiver. Mark, the boy Blair's father desperately wanted her to marry. So there Blair sat in a too-hot car next to the golf shirt with popped collar in human form. That was Mark. She suggested they go tubing at Blackwater. That way she could pretend she was sleeping. Now, she was floating lazily along the river. Mark had joked that her neon swimsuit was going to reflect the sun's rays and harsh their vibes. She put on her sunglasses and tuned him out. She told Mark to cut it out, feeling the cold splash of water against the sun-starched material of her suit. Splash fights were juvenile. He chuckled, and she had to resist the urge to hit him. They locked eyes. He was defiant. She was annoyed. He spoke first, telling her to loosen up. She flung water back at him in a strong, angry swell. Rather than get mad, He dove into the water. At least now she had some peace and quiet. She luxuriated in the feeling of the warm sun against her face. The sounds of nature were all around her, lulling her into a sense of contentment. This was the break she'd been looking for. She did not want to look up. She was done with these games. She was done with Mark. Finally. Slowly, lividly, she lifted her head and lowered her sunglasses to the bridge of her nose. Mark was bobbing up and down in the water about 10 feet from her, flailing his arms wildly, screaming for help. Without hesitation, Blair slid off the tube and dove into the water. She caught up to him, circled her arms around his waist and dragged him back over towards the tubes. It was only when she'd hauled him back up against the rubber circle that she heard his laughs. He told her it was just a little fun. She did hit him this time, straight in the shoulder. He said to relax. She reminded him that she couldn't relax when someone was pelting her with water and pretending to die in front of her. He muttered a half apology and said something about her being a killjoy. She told him he was the devil in ugly board shorts and turned back towards the sun. Blair slathered his skin in suntan motion and then settled back down into her own tube. She placed her toes in the water and could feel slight motion below them. She couldn't stifle her own giggle at the strange sensation. She'd been too focused on saving Mark to notice what kind of fish were down below but whatever aquatic cuties were down there felt smooth and slippery against her skin. Not nibbling or thrashing, just investigating. This place belonged to them, after all. Water fell onto the stomach of her swimsuit. This was getting annoying. Blair sat up, turning to look at Mark. But he was asleep, convincingly so. He had too much of an ego to fake his mouth hanging open like that, drool sucking in and out of his lips ever so slightly. Blair took off her sunglasses and looked up. A soft breeze blew through the trees. Spanish moss wriggled like snakes reaching down to skim the water. She slunk back down, resting her head on the rubber. It was probably more fish. Nothing to worry about. The warm heat of the sun and the soothing sounds of the water slowly lulled her to sleep. A tug on her ankle woke Blair up, nearly yanking her off the tube. She pulled her foot free. Slimy fingers tried to grab for it again. She kicked, but only found air. Fed up, Blair hoisted herself out of the tube and dove under the water. The tea-colored water had turned almost viscous, clouding her vision. She pushed her hands out in front of her and touched something fleshy, but not quite human. It slipped away from her. Blair tried to swim farther out, but she couldn't find any signs of Mark. She was alone. She pulled herself out of the water and back into the tube. He would come back eventually. The air smelled different now. Like something had died. She hoped someone hadn't poached one of the poor gators. Suddenly, Mark grabbed onto the edge of her tube and started jostling it violently, asking if she had seen her. Blair climbed away from him and over to the empty tube, huffing the whole way. She had no idea what he was talking about and resented this poor attempt at getting closer to her. But he was shaking. He told her that they needed to go. She pressed him for more. But all he would say is that something pulled him from his tube and he'd only just escaped. Whatever it was, he said, had smelled like a dying animal. She checked him for signs of heat exhaustion or dehydration, then reassured him that there was nothing in the water but fish and sand. She dove in to prove it to him. Mark cried out as she hit the water, but she waited and nothing happened. Treading water in front of the tubes, she actually smiled up at him, but only out of pity. Mark started to relax into the tube and Blair climbed back up into the empty one. He was kind of cute when he was scared. Sure, his shirts were awful and he wasn't observant, but when he wasn't trying to be cool, he was, well, cool. Blair leaned back, letting the sun hit her body full force. She let her heels dip into the water, feeling the slight current. Something sharp bit into her ankle. Blair moved her foot out of the water and onto the tube to examine the damage. She expected to see bite marks, but the wound was made up of small half-crescents, like fingernails. She looked to Mark, who was staring at her with concern, a vulnerability she didn't understand. Calmly, Blair asked Mark if he had seen someone else in the water. Mark grabbed her arm tightly. He asked her, If she had seen her, too. Blair shook him off. She'd been down there herself, and she'd been fine. But the wound on her foot was starting to hurt, and she didn't like the idea of lake water getting into it, no matter how clean it supposedly was. It was still brown, wasn't it? She told him it was time to leave, and he paddled his arms fast through the water, taking them to the shore. They left the tubes on the sand, but one of them was starting to deflate. Blair could have sworn that she saw a bluish-gray hand creep towards the sand, but it was gone in the next instant. They collected their things, eyes darting from the softly flowing water to the whistling trees. The wind slowed, and Blair felt Mark's hand find hers. Something was rising from the depths of the water where their tubes had been only minutes ago. A blanket of dark hair had covered her face and her hands looked more like claws. The smell of death was overpowering and her image seemed to shimmer like ripples around rocks in moving water. Then the strange woman moved. Blair and Mark took off running The sand slowed them down, but Blair could feel her adrenaline rising in response. They ducked down one of the trails, hoping it was the right one to the parking lot. When their lungs were burning and their feet were too cut up from the various branches along their path, they stopped. The dirt was littered with tiny puddles, swiftly disappearing remnants of the rain that morning. Mark put his foot in one to clean some of the dirt and blood from his skin. Blair tried to control her breathing, searching the trees, scouting ahead to see if they were being followed. She turned back to tell him she could see the parking lot. A pale, bloated hand was creeping out of the puddle below Mark, grabbing hold of his ankle with an iron grip. It pulled, and Mark began to sink into the soil. Blair sprinted to him, throwing her full weight into trying to pull him back as he sank deeper. They yelled and cried, but no one seemed to hear them. The quicksand only pulled harder. Then, suddenly, it stopped. It wasn't pulling, but it wouldn't free him either. Mark calmed Blair, telling her she could go get help. He trusted her. She felt something she couldn't explain as she started to run for the parking lot. Something that caused her to turn around one last time. That was why she saw her doom coming in Mark's pain, frightened eyes as the water held him tight, making him watch. Because he could see what she couldn't. She was standing in a puddle. Blackwater River has a millennia and more long history so the roots of the legend of the river ghost are hard to trace. There are a few details all witnesses seem to agree on. She is deathly pale, with long black hair, always accompanied by the smell of rotting flesh. She is known for grabbing people in the often shallow water and pulling them below. And it has even been reported that she can reach through any water vessel in the state park. One man claims that she grabbed his ankle while he passed by a puddle. The Pale Woman in Blackwater River is a powerful legend, but there are more concrete, more human threats in the area. Don't let the word human fool you, though. With these men, you can die twice. Coming up, We'll have more from the murky waters of Blackwater River.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be
1: have some strange stories to tell. Ted Bundy was caught by a Pensacola police officer while heading for the Alabama state line. Two of the 9-11 hijackers were taught to fly at Pensacola Naval Air Station. And Pensacola's abortion clinics have been the target of multiple bombings and shootings, most notably on Christmas morning in 1984. People believe strongly here, sometimes to the point of murder. But belief can also work miracles, if you ask the right people. But how do you know if they're right? Kara knew her daughter had the devil inside her. He had clawed at her beautiful Marie for months, chipping away at the good that had made her a paragon in their community. When Marie graduated from high school, she had had a bright future ahead. A scholarship to FSU, an engagement ring from her childhood sweetheart, Skip, and a steady job for the summer, managing a daycare center. But the devil had snuck inside her the night of her graduation party. She had broken up with Skip, stopped going to her job, and she'd been talking about not even showing up to FSU. Kara had given her time to pull her act together, but summer was coming to an end and Marie hadn't changed. Worse, she was defiant, unkind, dismissive. Drastic measures had to be taken. Kara had never believed in exorcisms, at least not the Linda Blair kind. She knew the devil did not obey the will of men, and that God was the only one who could cast out such evil. But demons were masters of trickery. They could fake miracles, make you believe things were solved when they weren't. No, the only way to escape the devil was to die. Kara could have given up on Marie right then, but God offered the solution to her with the Brownsville Revival. They talked about being able to raise the dead and even brought in a missionary, Patrick, who had reanimated several people in Mexico. If she could get her daughter into their hands, her problems would be solved. Patrick had offered to meet her at Blackwater River. The church was too hectic of a place for this sort of affair, he said. Kara had agreed. These things were private, family business. She told Marie that she understood now, that she was ready for her to grow up. She suggested they go to the park the way they had when she was small. To commemorate, there had been a long pause for a moment, and Kara had feared the devil would show his face through her daughter again. But Marie just smiled her old smile, looking relieved. She asked Kara if they could have a fun photo shoot when they were there. She'd wear her favorite frock, and they could call it late graduation photos. Marie's favorite dress was a modest but beautifully embroidered white number she had circled in a Delia's catalog when she was only 15, but it still fit as she moved from a gangly girl to a young woman who was still gangly and small in her own way. She looked like an angel, resplendent in white robes. For the briefest moment, Kara had some doubts, but she reminded herself that this was for the best. Marie would be her child again. She would be safe. She would be herself. They drove with the radio blasting, and Marie seemed like her old self for the first time in ages. But Karen knew that the devil was desperate to hold on to anyone they claimed. With a smiling face and a black heart, they could fool anyone for a moment. She knew the truth. And she would make it right. They parked and headed down one of the paths towards the river. Marie's hands trailed along the leaves. She looked so young. Eight and eighteen all at once. Kara led her to a spot by the river where cypresses hung overhead, blocking out the harsh sun. It was peaceful here. A good spot for Marie to be reborn. Kara pulled out her phone, took some pictures with Marie. They were giggling, joking, a family again. Marie laid her head against the base of a cedar tree. Kara stroked her child's hair and reminded her that she'd always loved to nap in the sunshine. Marie smiled and nodded at her. Eventually, her eyes shut. Kara listened to her even breathing for what felt like hours but Patrick would be coming soon, and she wanted to do this part alone. She pulled out her kitchen knife and plunged it through the chest of her only child. Marie's eyes flew open. Kara had to keep both hands on the knife as Marie's body started to spasm. She hadn't hit the heart. Marie kept begging for her to stop, but Kara couldn't do that. Not yet. She had to cleanse her daughter's body. Blood flecked across the front of Marie's white dress as Kara dragged the knife down. Kara pulled the knife out and drove it into Marie's body again and again until Marie's screams had diminished to a wet gurgle. And then she stopped. The knife was still stuck in Marie's chest all the color had drained from her daughter's face her mouth hung open frozen in a pitiful scream cara drew her hand over her daughter's eyes but they remained open windows to a tortured soul now freed of a corporeal prison Kara washed her hands in the river and waited among the cypresses patrick took longer than he said he would Kara carried water over to her daughter's corpse and dabbed at the bloodstains, but it didn't change anything. Kara removed the knife from Marie's chest. She pulled the two sides of Marie's now-torn dress together to preserve her modesty. Patrick arrived, and Kara felt her body heave a sigh of relief. Her child would be safe now she didn't expect for him to turn around and throw up on the sand he apologized saying that he had never been in the presence of a body that had been brutalized like this Kara hadn't been given instructions on how to do this she'd considered drowning marie but it seemed wrong to end her in the same waters that would redeem her she'd done the best she could but she kept those thoughts to herself as Patrick examined the body. Kara watched as Patrick stepped away from Marie and headed towards the river. He said a prayer over the water, asking for God to cleanse it and make it holy for their use. His eyes were closed, and his breathing was calm. His certainty soothed Kara, who had to keep herself from stroking her daughter's hair, rubbing her back the way she had when she was small sick. It had been a spiritual sickness, after all. When he was done, he turned and waited. Kara gently dragged Marie's body towards the river and the waiting preacher, leaving the soft green grass for the soft, white sand. Kara slid Marie into the water, head towards the preacher, floating among the water lilies and ferns. She bobbed against the holy man's legs, and if Kara had been looking closely, she would have seen him shiver. As she leaned closer to her little girl, Kara caught her own reflection in the strangely still water. She hadn't realized how much blood had caked onto her skin, but now that she saw all that red, it almost felt like glue a stain she needed to remove to be worthy of her daughter and of God's love. When she looked at her daughter again, something about Marie's face had changed. Her face was bloated, but her lips were cracked from a lack of water. There was a sickly orange color to her skin. Kara's doubts came back to her. But when they lifted Marie's face out of the water, It was as it had been a few moments ago. Deathly pale, but still the face of her daughter. Patrick prayed fervently over the body. Kara watched him mutter to himself, speaking for God's benefit and not hers. He clutched at Marie's hands, and Kara felt a strange urge to tear Marie away from him she looked so frail next to the man's tanned skin and large, clumsy hands. Worry clutched Kara's heart. Perhaps Patrick was the smiling-faced devil and she'd gotten this whole situation wrong. No. She must adhere to her faith. It was all a test. Marie's skin grew more stiff. A soft blue started to dust her cheeks. The cicadas fluttered in Kara's ears, drowning out the rest of the sounds. She tried to stay focused on her daughter's survival, but she could feel something watching her, waiting. Kara turned around, unprepared for what she would find. It was Marie, but she was floating in the air, swinging with the wind near the top of the cypress. Her dress was soaked, as it was on Earth. But the red had bloomed from her chest, traveling down and out along both her outstretched arms and in one long line down her legs. It was a cross. She looked at Kara with such hatred that Kara flinched. This could not be her daughter. Her daughter was just waiting on the other side for them. She couldn't be in the trees. She didn't look like that. She had never looked like that. So hateful, cruel, waiting. Patrick's prayers slowed to a stop. The thing that had taken on Marie's form vanished before Kara's eyes. Yes, this is what she had hoped for. Marie was reborn now. The demon was gone. They were free. She looked down, but her daughter hadn't changed. She was still limp in Patrick's arms, her eyes open, frozen, and pleading. Patrick smiled at Kara softly, pityingly. She couldn't hear his words over the frantic rush of blood in her ears. Her daughter was supposed to come back. He had done this countless times. He could not give up on Marie. But he was already walking away. Kara pulled Marie to the shore and grabbed the knife from the surrounding sand. She left Marie's body and headed towards Patrick. He said he pitied her lack of faith. She did not believe enough. If she truly believed in the Savior, he would have brought Marie back. Kara felt her fingers tighten on the knife. She had believed. She had always believed. She had taken a risk for her daughter because she knew Marie loved God and would want to return to him. And now, the man she had barely met was questioning the intended destination of her immortal soul, of her daughter's immortal soul. He was a false prophet, a charlatan. He had co-opted the word of God for profit and fame. She raised her knife, Something froze her in her tracks. She felt a heavy weight against the front of her body. But all she saw was empty air. Kara tried to move around it, but she couldn't. The force pushed on her harder and harder until she fell to the ground. The knife dropped out of her hand. She tried to shout, but the words caught in her throat. All she could do was watch the preacher's back. Retreating. A true retreat, a spiritual one, an abandonment. Just as she'd abandoned Marie, the thing with Marie's face stood over the corpse, studying the dead body with curiosity. Then the creature met Kara's eyes and smiled. There's a rumor of a woman in white who was seen near the oldest white Atlantic cedar tree in the park. And visitors have reported feelings of trances, chills, and even suffocation near the tree. The Brownsville Assembly of God Church, also known as the Brownsville Revival, is located in Pensacola, Florida. Brownsville was frequently in the news as the most high-profile 20th-century Pentecostal charismatic church in the South. And it was called one of the largest religious revivals in American history by the New York Times. They received particular mention in the Pensacola News Journal when a grieving father named Doug Fornier drove 350 miles to Pensacola in hopes that the revivalists would be able to raise his daughter only six weeks old from the dead. Pastor John Kilpatrick and his staff circled around the small, ice-filled picnic cooler that had become the little girl's coffin and prayed for her. When two hours had passed, they declared their work finished. God would not return Fournier's daughter to him. The area around Blackwater has been the site of many strange events and ghost sightings. But sometimes it's the river itself that turns against you. Coming up, we'll see what happens when this popular recreation spot turns into a death trap. Now, back to the story. Blackwater River is a major recreation area for the Florida Panhandle, offering paddling, picnicking, and camping. But if you want a little bit more of an elevated experience, or would really like a private kitchen and bathroom, You can rent a secluded cabin beside the river for $150 per night, complete with a fire pit and a wraparound porch. It's picturesque. As long as the river behaves. Jamie was supposed to be working on his book. He was not. Instead, he was playing video games like it was his full-time job. Well. Playing video games was his full-time job, but he was supposed to be on sabbatical working on his book about playing video games as a full-time job. He needed to focus. That meant peace and quiet, and a very slow internet connection. His cabin didn't have Wi-Fi, but it did have a large wraparound porch and a working toilet. He would learn patience, waiting for the Wi-Fi hotspot to connect. Maybe he would even get some writing done. Jamie spent a few hours just taking in the silence. A soft breeze blew through the area. It settled something inside of Jamie, bringing him a calm that he could rarely find. He took a picture of the crimson sky as the sun was swallowed by the river and then headed inside. It was harder at night to entertain himself, He brought a few books, but the settling of the house had his nerves on alert. Each bump or creak made him sit up. He had to remind himself frequently that he was safe and alone. There was no serial killer lurking in the woods. He was fine. Jamie felt water in his ears. He woke up to find his pillowcase soaked. Maybe this wasn't as nice a place as he thought... He searched for a leak, but couldn't find one. It hadn't even rained. He couldn't have sweated that much. There was no washing machine, so Jamie hung his soaked pillowcase on the shower bar and headed out to the sand. There were a few tourists sitting under umbrellas. He could hear the excited barking of a dog nearby. But otherwise, the place was almost deserted. Hurricane season had that effect. Jamie walked along the shore. He relished the quiet swaying of the leaves and the light splashes of the river. When he could see some of the sand under the tea-colored water, Jamie waded in. He stayed on the sandbar, taking the view in. He moved closer to the shore. Water started to race around him. Jamie stood absolutely still, waiting for it to pass. His legs burned with the effort of fighting the current. In many places, the river was shallow, wadeable, and almost always tranquil. It made no sense. He shivered as a breeze moved through again, and the sun hid behind a canopy of trees. The water slowed, and Jamie made his way back to the shore. Jamie walked back to the comfort of his cabin. Even though hours had passed, his pillowcase was still soaked, He moved it to the sink and took a shower, washing off the sand that had stuck to his legs. Jamie dried off and wrapped himself in blankets. His bones felt cold, despite the recent record high temperatures. Darkness came quick, and Jamie wished he had brought a portable game console with him. The buzzing of the cicadas echoed in his ears, like soft fluttering chainsaws. He tried to lay down and force himself to sleep. But something was dripping onto his face. Jamie shifted, laying his head at the foot of the bed. He woke to more drips on his face. There was a brown patch blooming on the ceiling that hadn't been there earlier. He called the manager of the cabin, who promised to take a look the next morning. Jamie camped out in the living room, a blanket covering his face, just in case. The knocking startled Jamie awake, falling off the couch in the process. He lumbered over to the door and let the manager in. When they got to the bedroom, the blooming water stain had been replaced with a white ceiling. Jamie could still hear drips from the night before. The man didn't hear anything. He joked that Jamie probably just had some water left in his ears from swimming. Jamie sheepishly apologized and led the man back out. He couldn't stand being in the cabin any longer. The fresh night air was a relief. The swish of the water was louder in his ears now, but it looked calm and inviting. Before he was aware he was doing it, Jamie was walking into the water. It licked at his heels and toes, caressing his fingertips as he waded deeper, under the bright white moon. The bottom gave out underneath his feet and he came to life again, splashing wildly against the water. He launched his body back towards the safety of the shore and felt the crush of sand underneath his feet. His knees gave out and his head went fully underwater. He pulled his body up, fighting the current, and pushed towards the safety of the shore. He collapsed when he arrived coughing up brown water and bile. The water was lapping at his heels now, like trailing fingers. He moved his feet up, closer to the rest of his body, but the water followed him. Jamie got to his feet. He heard the water roaring in his ears again. He turned, ready to scuttle back to his cabin, but when he looked, the water was still, calm, inviting the time alone had gotten to him. He needed to pack his belongings and head back to civilization. His skill and guild rankings would be tanked. It was time to return to the games that paid for his livelihood. He didn't see the rush of water coming. It picked his body up off the sand and sent him careening down the waterway. Jamie fought to keep his head above water but the current was stronger than him. He tried to reach for lower hanging branches, but they slid out of his grip, leaving trails of blood behind. Jamie's arms burned from the cuts, and his legs grew tired from his constant kicking. Water slid down his throat, choking him. The golden brown liquid crawled toward his lungs. He could feel himself sinking. He was pushed further down. But even then, escape seemed possible. The surface was only ten feet away. He could see the sun above. But the tide was too fast, too cruel. It swirled and beat him. His body collided with something hard. And then, there was nothing left to see or fight. Jamie faded. And the water went still. In 2014, brothers David and Greg Florian were drowned in a rogue current in Blackwater River. Two witnesses reported that they were swept away at 4.30 p.m., but the Florian's bodies weren't discovered until 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. respectively. They had been held down at the bottom, buried by debris and water pressure. The search took longer than anticipated, because the river itself seemed to resist. The water levels kept rising, and the currents kept changing, endangering the searchers as they worked to reclaim the men's bodies. Something in that river didn't want to let go. Pensacola Bay, which Blackwater River empties into, claims to be the oldest city in America. The truth is a bit tricky as Pensacola was the first multi-year European settlement in the continental United States, beginning in 1559. But the site was abandoned after a hurricane decimated the area. It is a land that resisted so-called European civilization, while acting as a waterway for trade and culture for the Muscogee, Choctaw, and other southeastern Native Americans. Blackwater River existed far before white men came to Florida's shores. And like much of Florida's ecosystem, there's always been an element of unpredictability to it. A land of plenty filled with danger. It's no surprise then that the legends dwell just beneath the not quite Blackwater, waiting to rise with the tide and currents. It's certainly worth a visit for the scenery, the paddling, and the fresh Florida air. But be careful where you swim. In Blackwater River, gators are the least of your worries. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Blackwater River, amongst the many sources we used, we found the incredible rangers and staff of the Florida State Parks and the investigative reporting of the Pensacola News Journal, particularly their expose of the Brownsville Revival, extremely helpful in our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParkCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Richey. I'm Greg Paulson.